Father, uh, Lord, I know that I really believe, I've seen it happen many times, that when I'm weak, you're strong. And that uh, your, your presence and your power doesn't depend on us at all. And so we just relinquish that to you. And I pray, God, that you would strengthen me enough to be able to say what I want to say and give me clarity of mind. Uh, fight off the NyQuil, Lord, to give me a clarity of mind enough to speak the words in a way that are intelligible. But more importantly, Holy Spirit, infuse these words with your authority to free us from ourselves. Free us from the prison of ourselves, the bondage of ourselves, that we may dance in the reality of the triune God and experience real life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In case I didn't say it, the title of this message is, What's in it for me? Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For the love of Christ urges us on. That's that word compel, constrain. Because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Paul was explaining why he was choosing a life where he was getting beaten quite regularly, thrown into prison, having his life threatened, ultimately had his life executed. Uh, and he was explaining why he does this. He spends his life doing this. And, and his answer was, the love of Christ constrains me. It just compels me. It urges me on. The phrase, love of Christ, is pregnant with meaning. It, it means both the love that comes from Christ. What motivated Paul was the love that he received from Christ. Everything starts there. He knew how much Christ loved him. But also it was his love for Christ as he reflects that love back to Christ. The love of Christ. The love that comes from Christ. The love that I have for Christ. And then the love of Christ for other people. Knowing that Christ died for all and therefore all have died. He considered it a privilege to be able to just tell people the good news. Uh, about their identity in, in Jesus Christ. So he was constrained by that. His singular motivation, the singular motivation for what he did was the love of Christ, the love that comes from Christ, the love that he reflects back to Christ, and the love of Christ that he extends towards himself and toward, towards his neighbor as himself. When we are in that triune love, the love that comes to us, the love that we reflect back to God, and the love that we have towards others. When we're in that triune zone, we're dancing with the Trinity. We are, we are in kingdom life to the extent that we're living in that, to the point where our motivation is no longer about what we can get out of things, what are the kickbacks, what's in it for us. But rather, our motivation is simply the love of Christ. We do what we do with the singular motivation that we love Christ. See, in the earthly terms, there really is nothing in it for win. To give up everything that she could have had here and then go over to Cambodia. There's nothing in it in earthly terms for her. It is actually an act of absolute lunacy. But in kingdom terms, there's everything in it for her. There's everything in it for her because she has, she's doing life. This is life. This is what life is when you're living in that zone. And I'm not saying that everything over there is peachy king, that she never gets lonely, never gets frustrated, never has uh, struggles that she has to go to. Of course, of course she has to go through stuff like that. But beneath it all, <coughs> there, is, there is a reality, the reality of God's presence, of his love, of his joy, of his freedom. And that is the pearl of great price. That is the precious jewel. That is life itself. This is the paradox, the ultimate paradox of the kingdom life. It's at the center of everything. Jesus said, if you try to find your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, you'll find it. It's a paradoxical statement, but it's, it's the center of our existence as kingdom people. 
What he's getting at here is this. He's using life in two different senses. If you try to find your life, which means if you're chasing after the good life now, the American dream now, trying to grab all the gusto you can right now, if you're trying to find your life, you're going to lose real life. You'll miss out on kingdom life. You'll miss out on the love and the joy that is found in real life. But if you will lose your life, if you'll forsake chasing after the good life, trying to get, establish your security and your worth and your significance by who you impress and by what you own and by what you achieve, if you lose that, die to that completely, then you'll find real life. You'll find it. The freedom from self, the freedom to love. Because now you're acting with a motivation that's not about what's in it for me. You have a freedom there and a life there. Now you're living in the kingdom. To find real kingdom life, you've got to die to the self that perpetually asks the question, what's in it for me? And Christian discipleship is all about teaching people how to die to that self, that flesh self, that's always asking, what's in it for me? Christian discipleship is about learning how to do what we do out of the singular motivation uh, that is the love of Christ. Uh, Christian discipleship, growing in the kingdom, is learning how to live the kingdom life, learning how to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. And that life, that kingdom life, is absolutely antithetical to everything that this world considers to be life. The Bible, even in the Old Testament, from beginning to end, goes out of its way to kill the self that lives in the question, what's in it for me? You see this in some of the Bible heroes, a lot of the Bible heroes. Uh, heroes in our day. <coughs> the heroes of our day. They always, you know, they, they always eventually win, don't they? And, and they always, you know, get the money and they get the fame and they get the girl and they live happily ever after. That's, what, that's what's supposed to happen to heroes. That's what we like to, uh, that's the kind of ending we like for our heroes. And the thing about the Bible, and this is one of the things I love about the Bible, it's so realistic is that that's not the way the Bible portrays the heroes. More often than not, the lives of heroes gets worse because they follow God, because they're heroes of faith. Let's, let's just look at two of them very quickly. It's the Christmas season, so let's take a look at Mary. In Luke chapter 1, verses 28 to 33, the angel Gabriel comes to her and says, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. How blessed! How great! It sounds wonderful. We love the story so far. I and mean, what an honor. You get to bear the Christ child. There couldn't be a greater honor in the world. Twice it says you're favored. God's caught your eye. Blessed are you. And Jesus is going to have a kingdom that will last forever. He'll have a kingdom after the type of his ancestor, David. He, he'll be called great. This is going to be wonderful. But see, 30 years later, Mary's not feeling so wonderful. She's not feeling so favored. Uh, her son, whom she loves dearly, preaches his first sermon in Luke chapter 4. And it, the first response of people is they want to kill him. Read it in Luke 4. They want to kill him. They take him up to a mountain. They're going to throw him off a cliff. 
Uh, you talk about, you know, a bad first sermon. Uh, that's not the kind of response you're looking for. But people wanted to kill him. He's making, out, he's making outlandish claims for himself. He's, he's talking about the father as though he was equal with the father. He's got this special relationship. A lot of people consider it to be blasphemous. And so he's walking around here claiming to be the son of God, having this special relationship with the father. That's ticking a lot of people off. But on top of that, this would-be Messiah... He's got all the losers of society following him, all the people that no one likes. They follow him. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners. This is his main entourage. Yeah, the savior of the world. He's got all these hookers following him. And then, and then he invites on the inner circle. He invites uh, uh, Matthew, a tax collector. Nobody likes tax collectors. But then he invites a Simon, the zealot, a, gr- a, a, a guerrilla warrior, a, a, a revolutionary. This is going to be wonderful. Uh, this is, the, you know... That would catch the eye of some of the Roman authorities who are saying maybe this guy's got some political motives here, and so he's got the political authorities after him. He's got the religious authorities all ticked off. He doesn't go by any of their rules. He's breaking all of their taboos. He's crossing all the barriers. Some people think that he's possessed of the devil. Others just think he's out of his mind. But either way, it looks like he's going to get himself killed. In fact, Mary and uh, Jesus' siblings thought that he had gone insane. Look at this. It says this in Mark chapter 3. <clears throat> Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat, because he had to lay down in those days to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons, and they all want to kill him. Mary is not feeling very favored right now. This wasn't in the script, all right? Uh, the, the, the angel Gabriel never mentioned anything about, yeah, your son will go crazy and people will think he's possessed of the devil. He'll have a reputation for being a drunkard and a glutton. Hookers are going to be hanging out with him all the time and, 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 and there'll be attempts on his life. Uh, that wasn't in the script. But here Mary thinks and his, 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 own ch- his own siblings think he's going nuts. What happened to this King David stuff? What about the kingdom that will never end? What, what about his, he, he shall be called great? What about all of that? What about me being favored? This doesn't feel like I'm being favored right now. That's how Mary would be thinking. But it went from bad to worse because, as you know, a couple years later, Mary's worst fear, the worst fear a mother could ever have, have come, came true because Jesus was, in fact, captured, and he was beaten terribly and mocked and then crucified on the cross. And so it says this in, in um, uh, John chapter 19. Enter into this here. Uh, it says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple, he's hanging on the cross here, It says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, here's your son. Behold your son. I mean, enter into this moment. He's there, unrecognizable. And he says, hi, mom, this is your son. Probably not quite what you expected 30 years ago, is it? Came into the world with all this fanfare, all these promises, all this wonderful stuff, how favored... And now here she is having to watch her son in this kind of pain, dying this kind of a death. And see, we sometimes tidy it up a little bit by, by fast-forwarding the movie to the resurrection. But see, we've got to realize that, that they, Mary and the disciples didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, that had gone in one ear and out the other. They weren't expecting a resurrection. That was off the radar screen. They didn't get that. As far as Mary is concerned, this is the end right here. The final chapter, the final sentence of this story is, "'My son is getting crucified.'" enter into what that must have been like. Think of the confusion. 
What about great? What about the king lasts forever? What about uh, he's supposed to save the world? And here he is, he's dying on a cross. How is this being favored by God? The grand prize that Mary gets for obeying the Lord is here she watches her son die a terrible, horrifying death. The point is that obeying God, Mary said yes to God 30 years, 33 years earlier, but it can lead to nightmares pain. It can lead to confusion. It can lead to disappointment. And the question I want us to ask is, are, 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 you, are you sure you want to sign up for this? Count the cost. If you're living in the question, what's in it for me? This isn't what you want to do. Another example is John the Baptist. John the Baptist spent his life, he had another person who came into the world uh, with, with a lot of fanfare and a lot of, you know, uh, angels and stuff. So John the Baptist, from a very early age, his, his life is dedicated to the Lord. His job is to prepare the way of the Lord. He gives up the good life. He doesn't marry, doesn't raise children, doesn't hold on a normal job. He goes out in the desert, lives uh, an aesthetic life out in the desert, uh, eating grubs, eating locusts, the Bible says, yuck. Uh, wearing this, this wool, not fancy clothing. He lives a sacrificial life. Then the time comes and he, uh, he, he announces the Messiah is at hand. He lays the groundwork for it. Everything's turning out just fine. But then John gets sent to prison. Herod has him arrested. He's in prison, facing death at any time. And as he rots away in prison for a certain length of time, he begins to doubt that Jesus was the Messiah. If you think that signing up to follow God means you're never going to doubt, you've got another thing coming. John the Baptist was doubting that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And so he sends these messengers to him and says this in Matthew 11. When John heard in prison that the Messiah, what the Messiah was doing, <clears throat> he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we wait for another? He's genuinely doubting. Like, what was this all about? Jesus answered them, You go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. He adds this, blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Why does he say that? Well, here's why. Because you've got to ask, if he's doing these miracles and stuff, who would be offended at that? Why does he add, tell John, blessed are you if you're not offended in me? The reason is this. Jesus was quoting here uh, one of the best-known messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Uh, it was Isaiah 61, which spells out what the Messiah is going to do. But in the way Jesus quotes this passage, and everybody knew Isaiah 61, but in the way Jesus quotes it, he leaves out the most important part. Because in Isaiah 61 it says that the Messiah would also proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners. And Jesus happens to leave that out. It's not coincidental. And that's why Jesus says, Blessed are you, John, if you're not offended in me. Put yourself in John's shoes. You know this passage. You're banking on him fulfilling that part of the messianic prophecy. But what Jesus says here is this. John, yes, I am the Messiah. I'm doing all the things that you and I both know a Messiah is supposed to do, except for the one thing you need him to do. Sorry, you're not getting out of prison. You're going to die. No explanation, just a denial. I'm the one hoped for. Yes, you're right. Thanks for preparing the way. But it's not going to do you a bit of good because you're going to rot away in that prison. And so it's no wonder that Jesus says, blessed is the person who's not offended in me. Are you offended, John? Because this is offensive. This, put yourself in John's shoes. This is offensive. 
Everybody else gets miracles. But I, who gave up everything just to lay down the groundwork for this guy, he leaves me out to dry. I'm rotting away in a prison. And the one thing a Messiah is supposed to do is to release the captives, but he's saying he's not going to do it. This is wonderful. You can understand how a person can feel like they got screwed over, couldn't you? His grand prize for giving up everything to follow Jesus is dying in a lonely prison. And the way he died was just humiliating. It was kind of a party joke. Herod and his wife and his niece, they had a little deal. And they said, oh, okay, we'll cut off John the Baptist's head. It was like he died. This noble man of God dies like a, a, a party joke kind of a death. This is offensive. Is this how, how, is this how God treats his favored ones? Is this how God treats his servants, his blessed children? What we're getting out of this, and I'm not expecting anyone to run the aisles just yet. Uh, what, what we're getting out of this is that obeying God can lead to disappointment, confusion, doubt, and a dishonorable death. Are you sure you want to sign up for this? Count the cost. Jesus always said that. Count the cost. When people would come to him, uh, he would often, uh, he almost discouraged people from following him. Masses of crowds would follow him. Uh, you know, to, to, for the miracles, everyone wanted to jump on the miracle bandwagon. As long as there was something in it for me. But when, when they said, I want to follow you, I want to be one of your disciples, I want to be discipled by you, Jesus often would almost discourage them. Foxes have holes, birds have, uh, have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. Um, you know, uh, I, I, if you're going to follow me, count the cost. You might have to be homeless. One person says, hey, I'll follow you, but first let me you know, go and bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. And what he's saying there is, if you're going to follow me, you might have to break some social convention. He, he, he almost discourages people. Count the cost. No one builds a tower, he says, when someone asks him to follow, if they can follow him. No one builds a tower unless they first count the cost. Are, are you up to this? Are you willing to carry your cross? What's in it for me? If you're, if you're looking for what's in it for, for, for me, I think you're following the wrong deity. And it's that way with all the heroes of the Bible. It's amazing. Moses, Moses, man, Moses got treated so bad. And, you know, and, and yes, there are times where you know, God gives miraculous blessings on people and whatever. Okay, so I'm not denying that. But some of these heroes of the Bible got nothing out of the deal in terms of this world. Moses, he didn't want the job. He tried to get out of the job. God sent him, makes him the leader of the Israelites. He goes in there, gets them out of Egypt, comes back. They're almost in the promised land, but then God tags another 40-year sentence on him because of the cowardice of some of their leaders. So he's got 40 years now wandering in a barren wilderness. His life's shot, leading this rebellious, stiff-necked, stubborn, whiny people. He never liked doing it. He never felt like he was cut out to do that, but here he is. And the one thing he's got going for him is, is he's thinking of the promised land. Oh, the promised land, the land that flows with milk and honey. That will make it all worthwhile. So read Deuteronomy 32. They're just about ready to go into the promised land. And what does God do? God says, go up to this mountaintop. He goes up to the mountaintop and says, oh, look at that land flowing, flowing with milk and honey. You can look at it, but you're not going to go in. The grand prize for obeying God is a, 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 a view. Thanks a lot. Because of something he'd done two decades earlier. I mean, it, it's, he, he, he didn't get to taste the promise. Jeremiah and Job and many others, all of Jesus' followers. You know, the grand prize for Paul for giving up all and following Jesus was death. The grand prize for Peter was death. The grand prize for Andrew was death. The grand prize for James was death. The grand prize for Stephen was death. The grand prize for John was being put out on an island, living the last couple decades of his life alone on a deserted island. What a sales pitch. <laughs> 
this is, this is really a good sell here. Hebrews kind of sums up what the fate of a lot of the heroes of the Bible were, were when it says this. And this will get you running the aisles. Hebrews chapter 11. Here's what happened to the heroes. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Hallelujah. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. Glory. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. Hallelujah. Destitute, persecuted, tormented. Thank you, Lord. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Yet all of these, though they were commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised. Ha! Oh, you, you got to be kidding. God calls them, says, here's the promise. They say yes to it. They go through persecution, sawn into, crucified, destitute, poverty, wandering in the wilderness, and they still don't get the promise. This is nuts. What a sales pitch. Sign me up now. What a deal. In terms of ordinary thinking, this is insanity. It's nuts. But it's the Bible's way of saying, if you want what God is offering, you've got to die to the what's in it for me question. What the lives of the heroes of the Bible illustrate is that there's something greater than what's in it for us. What their lives illustrate is that there's something greater than this life, something greater than getting the comfort, getting the convenience, getting the fame, or, or, or what have you. But if you want the something greater, here's the point, you've got to die to the lesser. You've got to die to this lesser thing that you chase. To find real life, You've got to die to trying to get surrogate life. Now, the, the, the self, the, the what's in it for me self, and the, our fallen flesh self is always asking that question. Majority of people on the planet live out of that question. Everything we do is motivated not by love, but by trying to answer the question, what's in it for me? That flesh self doesn't want to hear this gospel. In fact, our flesh self is offended by this gospel. And Jesus, out of his passionate, unwavering love for us, he wants to offend us with this gospel. Our flesh self wants to turn the gospel into something that is to our advantage. Our flesh self often thinks, and it's very crafty at doing this, we, 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 the flesh self wants to believe that if I'm favored by God, I ought to be able to cash in on that now. If I'm blessed by God, I ought to be able to see that now. If I'm following God, then I deserve a little bit of reward now. If I'm a child of God, then you ought to be taking care of me now. The God of the universe ought to be pulling the strings on my behalf right here and right now. That's what the flesh self wants. Rather than serve God, listen to this, rather than serve God and have it cost us everything, our flesh self wants God to serve us and for this to cost us nothing. So we turn the gospel about Jesus into a gospel about us. What can Jesus do for you? And see, the thing is, is that this kind of flesh religion sells. It sells, because it's what the flesh wants to hear, especially in a capitalistic consumer culture such as America. This is what the flesh self wants to hear. We want a what's in it for me, Jesus. And if you want to attract big crowds, uh, you just meet that what's in it for me need. Uh, you answer that question. You want to get big crowds, get them in an uproar, get them all excited. You preach this kind of a Jesus. Now, to, to prove this, we went out and asked a professional advertiser, uh, if you were going to market Jesus to America, how would you do it? And, and, and uh, here's what he gave us. Good friends, following Jesus doesn't have to mean suffering and sacrificing for others like it used to. Why, that's old school religion. Why today, following Jesus doesn't have to cause you any inconvenience whatsoever. 
because today we're offering the personal What's In It For Me Jesus. With the What's In It For Me Jesus, your life will be nicer, sweeter, richer, and happier. The What's In It For Me Jesus will get you a better job, a better house, a faster car, better family, better health, and yes, even a better love life. Mmm, think about that. Your own personal What's In It For Me Jesus will fix all your problems, answer all your questions, tell you exactly how you should vote, resolve all your conflicts, and protect you from all possible harm. Yes, friends, with your own personal What's In It For Me Jesus, you can have everything you've ever wanted right now and heaven to boot. What a deal! But wait, there's more. With the What's In It For Me Jesus, you and your Jesus friends won't have to trust God to transform you or your culture through those painful, inconvenient acts of self-sacrificial love. Say bye-bye to those days. The What's In It For Me Jesus will do it all for you. Wouldn't that be just nifty? Now you're probably thinking, I bet this What's In It For Me Jesus costs a lot. I maybe can't afford it. Silly doofus head, this is the best part. The What's In It For Me Jesus costs you absolutely nothing. You heard me right, folks. Absolutely nothing. It's free. Just say yes to this incredible offer and it's all yours. Supplies are unlimited, but time is not. You could die and go to eternal flaming hell tonight. So hurry up and get your personal What's In It For Me Jesus. Just call 1-J-E-S-U-S What's In It For Me. That's 1-J-E-S-U-S What's In It For Me. Uh, Fritz put that together. Hey, Fritz is a genius when it comes to this stuff. Fritz, you and I should take this on the road, man. We could, we, we could sell. We, we, we could sell this. Okay, I lied when we said I, we phoned a professional to do it. But that, that religion does sell. See, in a lot, of, I, I was watching, I, I check out on this once in a while just for the fun of it. And there's a guy selling a book, an evangelist selling a book, How to Get Everything You Want and Be Rich Too. I, that was the title of a book. And, and it, it's, see, but that, that sells in this culture, whether it's that overt or not. It's about what Jesus can do for you. We want a Jesus who will make our life a little nicer, a little sweeter, a little richer, a little happier, give us a better job and a bigger house and a faster car and a better family and better health and, yes, even better sex. When warm and fuzzy experiences on Sunday morning, uh, Jesus will fix all of our problems, resolve all of our conflicts, answer all of our questions, protect our religious rights and, uh, and, and advance our national causes, and we want fire insurance to boot, and we want it to cost us nothing. There's just one problem with the what's in it for me, Jesus. And that is, it's got absolutely nothing to do with the real Jesus. I'm not going to sell you a false package of goods. If you want to be a disciple of the real Jesus, he says you must count the cost. You've got to die, he says. Take up your cross daily and follow me. You've got to die to living out of this what's in it for me self. You've got to die to trying to establish your security by, by, by what you can acquire and by what you can achieve and die to pursuing perpetually the comforts of the world and recognition. Your life may not, in fact, be sweeter and nicer and healthier, hello, uh, for following Jesus. You may lose your job. You may lose your house. You may lose your car. For all I know, you may lose your family for following Jesus. He said that that might happen. In fact, following Jesus may create more problems for you than he fixes, may raise more questions than he answers, may cause more conflicts than he resolves, and may lead you into danger you'd otherwise uh, avoid. And far from defending your rights, uh, this Jesus says you have no rights, and your one job is to sacrificially serve the world. 
including those people that some religious folks don't want to look at. That's our, our job. How's that for a sales pitch? But wait, there's more. According to Hebrews 11, following Jesus may make you heartbroken like Mary, full of doubt while dying in prison like John, crucified, tortured, mocked and flogged, stoned, son and two, killed by the sword, destitute, persecuted, tormented, wandering in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground and not receiving what was promised. How's that for a sales pitch? Now we can run the aisle. All right. We want to know what's in it for you. What's in it for you is this. If you will accept, uh, allow Jesus to do it, accept the offer on God's terms, and allow Jesus into your life and surrender to him completely, he will put to death that petty, shallow, what's in it for me, flesh self. And if you're not offended by this and, and are willing to accept it and let it happen, you'll find that this is the single greatest thing he could possibly do for you. Because what he knows, but what we often don't know, is that that what's in it for me, flesh, self, is a prison. It's a prison. It's bondage. And every sub-kingdom aspect of our life, everything that makes our life miserable, is a result of our living in this what's in it for me mindset. And so Jesus, out of his profound, unfathomable, perfect love for us, wants to completely slay us. He wants to crucify that, that self. Because to die to that self, to die to the what's in it for me self, is to discover true freedom, is to discover true peace, to be free from that carcass, is to enter into the life of the kingdom of God, is to experience real life, kingdom life, abundant life. In dying to that self-centered that self-centered self, you discover how to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. You discover the joy that nothing can compare to this. The joy of doing what you do out of a motivation of love, or a singular motivation of love, without wondering about what the kickbacks are. And there is in that, Jesus promises, joy. That is that is true life. Out of his profound love for us, he wants to slay us. The paradox of the kingdom is that if you'll lose your life, you'll find it. If you try to find your life, you're going to lose it. When you lose your life, and genuinely, and, it, and it's, one, it's on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, when you die to the what's in it for me self, to, you enter into kingdom life. And that life goes on for eternity. Moses is no longer disgruntled for dying on the mountain. And John the Baptist has gotten over his problem with being in prison. And Mary no longer is grieving over his son. There's the resurrection. But to, but to, but to find that life here and then, we have to die to ourselves. I, I, I'll close with this. I met a, a young lady who um, several years ago said to me, uh, you know, I, I gave up on that Christianity thing. It just didn't work for me. It just didn't, it didn't do anything for me. I mean... You know, I didn't feel better or, you know, I didn't feel God's presence or anything like that. It just didn't work for me. It seems to work for other people, but it didn't work for me. My response to her was, you know, I, I'm not sure that you really gave up on Christianity. I think what you gave up on was some self-serving religion that someone peddled you in the name of Christianity. Because the real Jesus wouldn't come and say, here's what I can do for you. Uh, and, and, and some promise you, you're going to always be blessed and have a nice, warm, fuzzy experience or anything of the sort. The real Jesus promises you this. If you die, you will find life. If you die, you will find life. 
If you die, you have me. And in Jesus Christ is life, life itself, love itself, the kingdom, joy unspeakable and full of glory. But the only way to get there is to crucify daily that flesh self, the what's in it for me self. Would you close your eyes? And I want to just end by asking this question. And see, this is the kind of thing, this isn't about judgment or getting mad at yourself or thinking of somebody else. It's just about being honest. Be honest with yourself. Jesus is profoundly, passionately, unwaveringly in love with every person in this auditorium. And for that reason, he wants to slay you. So just be honest. Are you living for you? Are you living in a bless me religion? What motivates you on a moment by moment basis? Are you willing to surrender everything now? now? It doesn't matter that you did this 10 years ago or yesterday. Right now, are you willing to surrender? And if you are, just in your heart, just say, Lord, crucify that self centered self. Crucify my old self. Surrender it all to Him. Just turn it over to Him. And fill me with your love. I surrender all. I crucify myself before you now. Father, I pray that you be helping us to honestly evaluate ourselves. We so easily deceive ourselves. Help us to see what is real. Not to judge it or get mad at it, but just to respond to it. Holy Spirit, free us from the prison of self right here, right now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. Um, if that was like the first time you've ever done that, uh, I, I'd like to invite you up to this table here on my right, your left. There's a person who would love to talk to you about what it is to walk in the kingdom and get you started on that. Um, or if you become a recent Christian and you've not really plugged in, we want to talk to you and help you get started in this. I encourage you, three minutes from now, you'll have to have that same mindset. It, this is something we have to grow in, this crucifying of the self. You don't do it once and for all. It, it keeps coming back. The reason why making a living sacrifice before the Lord is so hard is because the thing keeps on crawling back on the altar or keeps crawling off the altar. So to live, to live in love is to walk with this mindset. Lord, take it. Lord, take it. Just keep on surrendering it to him. Live in love as we go out in the gathering area. If the prayer team would come forward, I want to encourage you, if you have any need whatsoever you'd like to have prayed for, they'd be glad to spend some time uh, and pray for you. God bless you guys. Pray for me that I get better. And uh, see you next week. God bless.